As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Ragged Mob somehow gets on Old Trafford pitch causes problems before being chased away. Oh, hang on, that's my Roma match report from Thursday. Ah, fan stage anti-Glazer protest on Sunday. Man United, Liverpool postponed. We get the reaction uh, to an extraordinary afternoon of action on site and in studio. Then we round up all the games that did take place and look ahead to the midweek fixtures too. Chelsea against Real Madrid and Man City PSG. How safe is that City lead? Plus, there's intertotally action between Sasha and Duncan. It's all in the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hello there, dear listener. It is May the 3rd. Hope you're having a nice time ahead of us. We've got a lovely hour in store in the company of Daniel Story. Hi, James. Hello to you. Adrian Clark. Hello. Good. And also Sasha Gurionov. Sasha's a little bit nervous because he's in the quiz later on. Hi, James. Nice to see you, Sash. It's been a weekend, everybody, of people taking action. No longer silently acquiescing in things they don't agree with. We've had the social media blackout, which is still rolling on, of course. But most visibly, the disruption at Old Trafford. Hundreds of fans gaining access to the pitch there at the uh, Theatre of Dreams. And uh, with others at the team's hotels, first delaying and then forcing the postponement of Sunday's big game, Man United against Liverpool. It's the first game in Premier League history postponed due to fan protests, although United's final game of the 2015-2016 season was also postponed. Do you remember why? That was the, the Bournemouth bomb score. Well, it was a bomb scare, but it was because the the company who tests these sort of things had accidentally left one of their fake devices, which is a top effort. <laughs> right. This time, of course, was no laughing matter. Uh, w- what did you make of it? I think it was a protest that achieved exactly what it set out to do, which cannot be said of an awful lot of protests uh, in football over the last few years, particularly in English football. I'm always very wary of saying, oh, you shouldn't protest like that, because that to me is a nonsense in that, yes, it might have contained a degree of irresponsibility on the part of some of those present, but... Um, protests do sometimes feel irresponsible. You know, just holding up banners and silently 
um, doesn't get things done. And Manchester United fans, that section of Manchester United support, know that more than anyone. Mm. Um, whether or not the Glazers listen this time, I don't know. I suspect not. But it, it's certainly a, a pretty seismic event to manage to get a game postponed. The the biggest league fixture in English football, to my mind, postponed. Um, so, yeah, they achieved exactly what they wanted to do. And, and I also thought it kind of, uh, you know, this is a, a an ownership that has repeatedly shown that they have a, a complete lack of regard for those supporters. So when it gets to that stage, it does take that kind of affirmative action. You know, you can't just, you know, I'm as guilty as anyone, but sending a couple of snide tweets and sitting back and congratulating yourself, you've done your bit, doesn't really work in this scenario. Mm. I thought it was interesting that Sky, who's, whose game it would have been, who essentially were there, had built their weekend around this huge fixture where... Almost 100%, possible exception of Graham Sooners, almost 100% sympathetic to what the protesters were doing. Absolutely. Yeah, I thought, I thought that, well, Jamie Carragher and, and Gary Neville in particular were, were pretty strong. No, no real surprise on their views. And, and look, I agree with Daniel. I think it was very powerful, the pictures that will go around the world, very, very dramatic. To, to get such a fixture called off is, is a big move. And and it just shows how how empowered the supporters are at the moment, and they finally feel they can have an influence on these owners. It it was it was an act of treason against English football, wasn't it? From 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 all of those involved, it would have destroyed the Premier League, it would have destroyed the English football pyramid, and it brought shame on Manchester United to be one of the ringleaders and. Yeah, I'm. I, I fully back these these supporters for for making their protests felt today. Mm. I also think it makes sense for it to come at this time now because I think the supporters obviously have been very unhappy with the Glazer ownership for so many years. But I think they they caught the right moment to build on the outpouring of emotion um, and self self righteous and correct emotion uh, that we have seen. Uh, around the Super League time. So I think to bring it, I think almost the Liverpool United game came around almost very conveniently mm. because this would have been also one of the Super League games. As also already mentioned, this is the biggest game in English football. And if you really you know, want to highlight your cause, I mean, I think this is effectively the game you go for. Also, have a look at how coordinated it was because it wasn't just at the ground. They also blockaded um, the team at the Lowry um, so, you know, it wasn't, it clearly wasn't just a spontaneous thing that just happened. Perhaps some of the actions uh, during uh, the event were spontaneous. But in terms of let's, uh, you know, let's target this game. This was, you know, you, you could see that there's a degree of planning went into this. Absolutely. Well, one man who was at Old Trafford on Sunday uh, was Carl Anker uh, for The Athletic. And he joins us now on the line. You were there in the thick of it. I'm not sure. Did you actually get, get out your Where's My Director of Football bedsheet? <laughs> uh i i will say i did pack a number of things in my rucksack to monitor this protest mm-hmm. uh for a variety of contingencies and i'd say the only things i had to get out of my rucksack were my phone charger and uh i had to give some teenagers some of my spare face masks when the smoke from the flares got too much. Okay. Uh, so I just simply gave them there. So from, from from all things considered, again, without going too much into personal politics, but yep. whatnot, but um, that was one of the... I've, I've been to protests that have been less safe. I've been to protests that have had more unfortunate endings. I will caveat with this with saying I'm a able-bodied man with 
certain fitness attributes and whatnot. So if it does kick off, I can get out of there quickly. But I'd say considering the amount of alcohol that I saw imbibed, I'd say that was a, I mean, I'd say it was a, in terms of what their aims were, I'd say they were successful in what their aims were. Right. And I'd say the amount of discord and disruption caused was mostly directed towards private property rather than persons, at least until around about four o'clock. Okay. Carl, I presume you were talking to the protesters while everything was going on. What was the kind of particular message? And did you hear any plans about what do they expect to happen next and what do they intend to do next? Is this the first of a series of demonstrations? Yes, I I managed to talk to to a handful of of protesters there. Some of them were gracious enough to, to, to allow themselves to be recorded in voice notes. And they'll be on the talk of devils podcast later in the week uh from what was interesting was there was there was definitely a split in what some fans wanted to happen next there were some individuals that had a had a banner that said glazers out gazprom in uh, and said they were they didn't mind if it was a a different billionaire owner be it from the middle east or russia or whatnot but the focus was very much to get the glazers out um the majority of the fans i spoke to had 50 plus one um talking about 50 plus one Entered a, an interesting, interesting uh, flowchart of conversation. Some seem to be quite clear onto what fifty plus one were. Others simply refer to it as the German model that works, um, and others seem very, very clued up as to what it was, and, and also to the failings of the fifty plus one model. Um, I did have a conversation with one fan that said this is just a start, um, and they commented that this is the best chance to protest in close to fifteen years. And that they would be hoping to keep the momentum going on forwards. Why, uh, is during... this, why is this the best chance? Because of what's just happened with the defeat of the Super League proposal. I think so. Yeah, I think I think the defeat of the Super League was a moment for all football fans. And I was on this podcast previously saying, you know, it, it's a group of people trying to rewrite how football works. And then once you stop that, you understand that everything around football can be rewritten to how you might want it. Uh, it appears quite a few of these Manchester United fans want to rewrite it to a, a version where the Glazers are no longer owners. Um, so some were talking about 50 plus one. Everyone I spoke to said positive things towards Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, said they gave, you know, the manager gave the club back to Manchester United in a positive direction. There was one who expressed, uh, a lot of them expressed a want for proper backing. And then you have that very interesting dilemma of whether or not, if Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was properly backed over the summer, whether or not these protests would, would go away. Uh, and they said, well, you know, address that when it comes to it. Uh, I also asked everyone for their opinion on Ed Woodward's position and, and their view on his resignation. And it was overwhelmingly positive that you know, it was a good thing that he had resigned. And it also seems that not one uh, Manchester United fan I spoke to believed the the claims that Edward would resigned in protest of the Super League. Uh, I think someone said he's lying to his back teeth. Near the end, I heard uh, some football fan basically, as they were backpedaling away from Mountain Police, said, we can do this every week. Oh. Uh, so... I imagine this will be, whether or not the numbers will still be in the thousands and possibly go down to the hundreds, but I think this will probably happen at the next home game and beyond. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. As I mentioned back at the start, one of two areas in which people have begun to react against things, in this case fans, in the other one, the social media blackout, federations and clubs saying that they weren't happy with the amount of abuse that's being allowed to take place there and and having that extensive kind of shutdown, which is still obviously going on. Sasha. 
Yeah, it was it was interesting that this type of event, this this event, partially broke the social media uh, blackout because people had to. I think I think people felt that this is the sort of news that had to be uh, communicated, um, and there was certainly a reaction to it. Because for me personally, initially trying to understand how quickly things were developing were probably a little bit more difficult than mm. they would have been on a normal weekend. Yeah, very true. Meantime, the the social media blackout, as we say, should be coming to a close. Nice to see lots of people committing to that. A Chelsea midfielder, Mateo Kovacic, probably getting top marks for enthusiasm. He didn't have a Twitter page previously, but he set one up on Friday just so that he could then shut it down again in solidarity. Uh, Also, nice to see Steve Bruce speaking out on the issue, expressing his support for the boycott, but also saying... On the flip side, social media got me my dog back after it ran away from a firework display. So there's there's that. But broadly speaking, as you guys were saying, interesting how the defeat of the Super League proposal for now does seem to have given people an idea that you don't have to go along with things, not just with Super Leagues, perhaps not just in football. Well, yeah, I mean, and if we have to remember that it's the first time ever that six billionaires you don't often get a billionaire on the back foot you certainly don't get six at the same time on the back foot and it's one thing we're really bad at in this country and it's it's due to the rise of tribalism is that we're bad at this kind of collective protest this this notion that there's more that unites us than divides us because our the club loyalty causes such deep divisions and i think one thing one thing the united protest will have done is that they might well have sent messages to other clubs to say yeah, hang on a minute. Even if it is fueled by a, well, if United fans can do it, so can we. You can always get this kind of bizarre one-upmanship that you think, well, if they're trying to push change, why shouldn't we try and do it? So in that way, I think it's probably infectious. One thing I would comment, though, I think that is a, the, the, the build-up of ill feeling uh, against the Glazers and obviously the evidence on what has happened to Manchester United over the last 15-odd years, I think maybe that experience is a bit different to some of the other clubs. And on top of this, I was thinking about this in the context of Liverpool uh, after the Super League plans were shelved. The problem is, it's a, this is not the same situation as 15, 20 years ago. The clubs are now so huge and it will take so much money to buy one out that the potential pool of new owners is actually getting smaller and smaller by the year. Mm. So in terms of, you know, as Carl mentioned, someone was talking about the manager getting properly backed. Or, or you know, talking about some, new, some potential new owners with like, you know, di- di- different type of money. I think the options might be very, very limited. And it's not, I would not like to say, you know, be careful what you wish for. But I think more serious thought has to go into what the change actually looks like, given the size of these clubs now. All right. Well, I think a lot of people are kind of pinning their hopes on the 50 plus one uh, model. But whether that's practical for uh, English football, whether it's whether it's realistic to envisage a government that has the political desire to to force that legislation through against the interests of some, you know, pretty moneyed individuals, not necessarily their forte. Um, yeah. We, we should also say that the part of the reason for, for protesting in such a vehement way is to be noticed by those owners. Um, I'm not saying that there'll ever be a kind of glorious rekindling of friendship between the Glazers and Manchester United fans but if they at least if it at least stirred them into some of the action some of the change that's needed at that club anyway then that that's a potential vaguely happy medium Mm. so what we saw on Sunday is uh, the failure of Manchester United to organize security for a football match would any sanctions for the club follow 
is my, my question because I think usually, I mean, if you, if you look in the practice, um, something like this uh, would certainly uh, lead to the question of how the game is organized. The fact that they weren't able to, you know, secure the perimeter right. um, and then allow for the COVID protocols to be breached. Probably there was some so um, Republican senators who left the door open or... Or, or similar, but well, no, so it is it is a very good point. How they were, there is footage of the the fans actually kicking in some of the doors and, and gaining access that way. But because this was a protest that was anticipated, and there was extra uh, police force or extra stewards on duty, I think a lot of people are slightly mystified about how uh, they were able to gain access to the pitch. I guess there's a lot more we're going to discover about Sunday afternoon's events, including when they're going to hold Man United Liverpool, because that's now very much. Up in the air, Man United have their Thursday night game against Roma. Ever so delicately poised that one after the 6-2 in the first leg. Anyway, uh, all questions for the future right now. Let's uh, take a very quick breather and then get on to the things that took place on the pitch around the Premier League this weekend. Uh, Harry, is there any truth in the rumours that you're off to Spain in the summer? Uh, 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 sorry, me, uh, me no hablo inglés. Uh, what about one of the Manchester clubs? Oh, uh, well, you know, it's... Uh... Well, Harry, what about my source who says you're keen to stay at Spurs? <laughs> uh, can we keep the question sensible, please? Kane's future at Spurs remains uncertain, but you're guaranteed to get money back as a free bet if one leg of your four-fold acre lets you down. Paddy Power! Max free bet £10, min odds 1 to 5 on each leg. Online exclusive exclude shop bets and enhanced match odds. T's and C's apply. 18 plus begumbleaware.org. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. It's Premier League weekend, everybody, and let's start with Spurs. 4-0 winners Sunday evening. Uh, a game which just concluded just before we started recording this, actually, listener. Uh, 4-0 against Sheffield United. A hat-trick for Gareth Bale, only his second ever in the Premier League. And uh, lots of interesting talking points from a Tottenham perspective, certainly. Uh, what did you make of Ryan Mason's lineup? What did you make of Deli Alley's kind of Pirates of the Caribbean get-up? I liked it. I thought yep. I thought I thought he looked the biz, Deli Alley. I really did. He, he looked he looked very uh, yeah very on trend. Good good headband action, and wasn't it nice to see the four of them together, um, Deli Alley. Bale, Son and, and Harry Kane is something that Jose Mourinho very reluctant to do, of course, particularly after he marginalised Dele Alli. So, you know, I, I would imagine Spurs fans w- w- were delighted with the, with the lineup, pleased with Ryan Mason, who looks the part, doesn't he? I, I think he looks very calm inside that technical area. I know it's early days, but, but he certainly... The players are responding to him. They seem to be enjoying their football. Gareth Bale's finishing was was just different class, wasn't it? I love the first goal, the run from deep. He identified a little three-yard pocket of space that he could receive the ball in and asked Serge Aurier to, to produce a really difficult chip, which he did. Um, but I tell you what, the, the one that really impressed me was 
was the second where he got put through from the halfway line. And, and we've seen so many players overthink it and, 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 and clam up at that key moment. But he just fizzed it, left-footed into the top bin, didn't he? It was, it was the finish of a, of a guy that has full trust in his, in his left peg, and, and understandably so. We should say for some balance that Sheffield United are absolutely abject. Um, I can't. I mean, I can see why they parted ways with Chris Wilder because there was a kind of simmering unease about control and transfers, etc. But I can't see why they did it with three, four months of the season to go because they've just completely given up. That I think that can really hurt a team going into next season when teams are so used I know Norwich have done really well this season but you could not pick two more different clubs that are going to go down and finish bottom of the table than Norwich and Sheffield United yeah I mean I think you only have to look at you know Huddersfield the season before who went into the snows dive and just couldn't get out of it Um, I also thought you know oddly for a game like this you know like there was a couple of goals that Spurs scored on the counter those counters didn't seem to be that quick. I mean, even the, the second goal, you know, that, that Bale scores, it's not as if he's like sprinting away. You know, it feels like everyone's sort of slowly jogging towards the goal. Oh, that's now he put it in the top corner. Um, so it did indeed feel like, you know, Spurs were playing like more of a training game against a doomed team with players who are like looking at the table thinking, oh, okay, we've got four more games to go and then this whole thing is going to have to be rethought. Um, so I think an obliging opponent, but Spurs are up to fifth, potentially in the conversation still well, with Champions yeah. League. Looking at the table, as you say, Sasha, there they are, 56 points. They are five points behind Chelsea. Uh, and then they got West Ham a point behind them. West Ham are going to play on Monday night away at Burnley. And Liverpool, who didn't get to play their game, are two points behind Spurs. But Spurs, their run-in is Leeds away, Wolves and Villa at home, and then they finish off at Leicester. Chelsea, five points ahead of them, have City, Arsenal and Leicester, and then they finish off away at Villa. So, Five points is a lot to have with four games to go in terms of a margin. But if you've got Bale in this kind of form, Sun looking like Sun again, and Kane presumably not going to have too many more games like this, although I'm not sure if there are questions still about his fitness, Spurs suddenly do look like they have only an outside chance, but a chance. Yeah, and they and that chance is... You cannot overestimate how important that is. You know, they are still looking for a new manager Europa League football will be something, but if they were able to sneak in, that basically completely changes Daniel Levy's managerial search. Uh, I don't think they will. I think it'll be that top four, I have to say. Um, but I, I think they're just slightly too inconsistent. But um, it would change everything. It really would. It would be an absolute get-out-of-jail-free card for, for Daniel Levy if if he was able to approach managers talking up Champions League football rather than Europa League. Mm. Also, I would say, you know, you're looking at that, uh, still looking at that Leicester running, and we'll get on to Leicester and the game against Southampton. Last game of the season, Leicester Spurs. And, you know, with those last three games for Leicester, you know, it could still be hinging on that. Right. Leicester currently seven points clear of Spurs. But as you say, Sasha, three of those points could be won on the final day. Leicester, who went down to Saints on a Friday, like last season, and like last season, Saints went down early doors to 10 men. However, this time, events took a different path. It was Southampton who took the lead and then held on after Johnny Evans' equaliser. What do you make of the suggestion that the red card was actually bad for Leicester in that it made their hosts shut up shop and and produce the kind of defensive display that the Foxes do sometimes struggle against? I I get that. Yeah, I do get that because Southampton, 
they like to press higher up the pitch and, and, and really hassle you and it leaves space in behind and that, that might have worked really well for, for Jamie Vardy and, and others, I guess. Um, and the full-backs had nowhere to really run into with Castagna and Co. So, yeah, no, I get it. I mean, it shouldn't have been a red card, in my opinion. I, I just think he just wins a tackle. It's it's a, it's a nonsense, in my opinion. And, and yeah, for, for the fact that officials back in Stockley Park, you know, spent time looking at that and then decided it was it was a red is is just another sort of nail in the coffin of the of the refereeing standards that we've got in this country at the moment. It was it was a shocking decision, but but look, yeah, Johnny Evans pulled one back, didn't he, towards the end, and 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 he he's been such a standout. It just got me thinking, him scoring that goal, what great value he's been, three and a half million pounds. Based on that, you can get 11 and a half Johnny Evans for a Nathan Ake. There you go. I'll leave you with that one. That's that's some bargain, isn't it? Uh, you know, also, like I keep on thinking about that Vestergaard tackle. And, you know, like, I had the Balbuena issue the week before where you, it's the follow-through that catches the player. Mm. And I don't know, but he did plant his studs onto Vardy's ankle, even if it was maybe accidental. Um, I don't know. You know, I think um, Hasenhutl said after the game it was because, you know, it was basically last man. Uh, but maybe for the actual challenge itself, not an ankle breaker, but, and he did get the ball first, but I just don't know where to draw the line. Does anyone have any thoughts? Because I, I, like, I've, I've looked at it 20 times and I still don't quite understand. Well, he, but if you win it. the ball, if you win the ball, Sasha, there's a momentum. He's, he, he, hmm. he, he's had a bad touch, hadn't he? He's chased it. So he's, he's got to lunge in, but he's towed the ball away completely then cleanly. studs up, but then studs up into the ankle. I mean, I know there's momentum in that. Yeah, I, 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 I get in, it. But in it's... the split second, it's very hmm. hard to control hmm. the, the, the angle of your foot. And, and he would still have collided with him. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just think common sense that if you want to give him a yellow card, fine. But to, to, to send a player off for, for a clean tackle, I just think is, is wrong. Uh, Adrian, you, you mentioned nails in coffins of refereeing standards. Are you of the opinion that refereeing is worse now than it was when you were a player? <laughs> um, it feels like it. It does. Yeah, it, feel, it feels as if... And why do you think that would be? I think it's because of the analysis. It's because we're now seeing referees given time to and slow motion replays to, to assess football-related incidents and they're getting them wrong. Um, whereas previously, we just didn't have access to, 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 to very many replays. We didn't have that kind of uh, scenario. So you, you just gave the referees the benefit of the doubt. So essentially, it was all kind of swept under our mental carpet, the yeah. carpet of our kind of lack of a knowledge of how many mistakes were being made rather than there being more exactly. mistakes now. Okay. Ex- well, that's exactly. A yeah. That's a relief. Uh, well, anyway, there you go. It finished 1-1 Friday evening down at St Mary's. Leicester remaining in third place with seven points as it stands over Spurs in fifth. Everton, meanwhile, on Saturday evening, losing at home to Aston Villa and they do look, do look now out of any realistic race for the top four. Well done to Villa, first of all, for getting this 2-1 victory. It's the first time they've won at Goodison Park since 2008. Did they look better to you? They look better than Everton because they look like they wanted it, which is outrageous given where Aston Villa are in terms of anything they need, which is not very much, and given where Everton are, which is needing an awful lot. And, you know, Ancelotti Mm. was, I think, for the first time kind of visibly angry after the game where he just kind of said, where he intimated that the application and attitude was just completely off from the start. And, yeah, that's unacceptable. 
they have been dreadful at home all season. So this is not a new issue. And the fact that he still can't solve it mm. doesn't speak particularly well of him or, or them. But, you know, if Everton had beaten Burnley, Newcastle and Fulham at home this season, they'd be level on points with Chelsea with a game in hand. That That's wow. the margins between them making the Champions League and finishing eighth, which is, is diabolical, really, because they've known about this issue all season. So I like Carlo and Chelsea. I'm sure we all do an enormous amount. Mm. But he has been cut, it seems, an enormous amount of slack uh, as Everton manager, if say Sam Allardyce or or Marco Silva had had a record like this, one one win in ten uh, since the turn of the year at Goodison Park, I, you can imagine the kind of criticism they'd be receiving. So far, he's been reasonably untouched by it. I mean, I, I don't think you can take the home record in isolation here, and I do have fifty-two points after thirty-three games, which I mean, for Everton is more than reasonable. Um, but I mm. think if you look at this, and clearly, you know, if if you look at the Villa game, there was an impact at halftime. I mean, the second half wasn't much to look at, but Everton didn't just leave Villa loads of space or get dozily caught on the ball. Uh, so it was a much more even half. But because in the but in the first half, you know, from Ancelotti's point of view, you completely see where he's coming from because they were just completely unfocused. The question is. Um, and plus, I mean, there was an issue that lost Hamas, um, I think, injured in the warm-up. Mm. Uh, but the issue is, th- these are this is now a set of listless performances that they've had from Everton at a crucial part of the season where they were actually set quite nicely to make something of it. The question is, is it mentality? Is it the quality? Or is it, you know, is it the case of Ancelotti's demeanour? You know, everyone gets a little bit too comfortable. I mean, I, again, this is, uh, this is something that's been raised in the past, and obviously... I don't, none of us have worked with Carlo Ancelotti, but is there some truth to the suspicions that he just maybe doesn't drive people enough? And at some point, you know, the focus just shifts. Just, but he's just, got just Duncan goes. Ferguson as his backup, so I'm not sure how comfortable you're going to get. <laughs> I mean, he's going to he's going to batter them in training on Monday morning, isn't he? Let, at least let's at least be sure of that. I think they're just a bit predictable. But too reliant on on James Rodriguez to to come up with a moment of magic. Too reliant on on Calvert Lewin to score the goals. I was looking at their creativity from open play, stats wise. The eye test tells you they kind of rely on James or, or Sigurdsson set pieces and the fullbacks. I don't see a lot of sort of fluidity. I don't see them creating that much in the home games. So I looked looked at it. They ranked fifteenth for chances created in open play, which is poor for a side. You know, with Champions League aspirations, Brighton have created 63 more chances at home than than Everton have at home. So that's that's the issue mm. that they need to really work on. And and Marcel Brands, the head of recruitment, I think he's got he's bought a few duds, and I think that he he's got to, he's got to deliver this summer. I was going to say I, I really really like Ollie Watkins. I think it's time to give him some praise because last season Grealish had to create the chances and then score the chances more often than not but Adrian mentioned Brighton there but Watkins is the difference between Brighton being 14th and Brighton being 7th or 8th because he's such a clever player when Grealish is in the team he kind of drifts left and helps him either double up on a player or lets Grealish drift in field and then he can also kind of play that target man role that Calvert-Lewin plays when Grealish isn't there uh, he's such a good player it's it's remarkable this is his first Premier League season given how quickly he's settled into the league he was a winger as well he, he's yeah. not been brought up as a centre forward he was he was a winger at, at Exeter and it was only really last season at centre forward and he looks Born for it, doesn't he? He, he absolutely ripped Godfrey and Holgate apart in this game. And, and look, isn't he a, another great advertisement for, for the English football pyramid 
that that pyramid that that the big six owners were were more than willing to to sabotage. This is a guy who came from Exeter to Brentford to Villa, and now he's at full international. It's been a great journey. Well, Watkins and Villa, a point behind Arsenal in tenth place. We'll talk about Arsenal, what they've been up to later on. Next up, we look at the champions elect Man City. Keep listening for Duncan Alexander versus Sasha Gorionov in the Intertotally Cup, sponsored by Paddy Power. And it's live-ish. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Man City 2-0 at Palace on Saturday, a victory that put them on the brink of the Premier League title. Was this game in many ways a microcosm of their season in that they did very little for one half and then completely bossed it? I don't know. I thought I was looking at the City team thinking, hmm, this is weird. You're playing your reserves and you've got the both strikers on the pitch. Mm. And it's clearly not the way you usually play football anymore. And uh, you're just hoping to get three points here, which is just a really. And then you look at who's on the pitch. It's Aguero, it's Sterling, you know, it's Laporte, who was supposed to be, you know, whose absence was supposed to have been key last season. And it just doesn't make any sense anymore. Right. Well, uh, Sergio Aguero, who, as you say, now figures among the reserves getting on the score sheet as they popped in two goals in the space of 83 seconds, much lamenting later on about the fact that he will be leaving Man City and what a terrible decision that is by Pep not to keep him on and that. Is is that fair or are you guys actually quite relieved to see a player of his calibre maybe make a move to a club where he's a bit more central to the kind of the, 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 the philosophy? The million-dollar question, I think, is where his legs are at. You know, he's played an awful lot of football. He's always had hamstring problems. And now the worry with old ageing strikers is always knees. So, yeah, that will decide whether he ends up at another super club or whether he goes to MLS or or back home to Argentina because he's just not played enough football that you can be confident in giving him a mega contract, I think at his age with with the the minutes in his legs he did take this chance particularly well it was his first goal from open play for 12 months though remarkably enough he's become uh, peripheral so very very quickly at the club Uh, any other pointers from City or as Sasha points out is this almost an irrelevance to their normal way of doing business I thought it was good to see good to see two strikers being deployed. Mm. Um, I, I liked Ferran Torres's performance. I think we kind of forget about him, don't we? But he's he's chipped in with with some good moments this season. He's still so young, of course. Looks a player of real real potential, and and it was interesting to see how emotional he was to score the goal. Now there was there, there was talk that that you know he struggled a little bit, isolated in you know in in Manchester. Um, with the, with the, with the pandemic, unable to see his family, that he's and not been in the team, he's had a hard time. So I think he was, there was just an outpouring of relief from him to to actually make a big contribution in a match that that, that might had the events of of Sunday not transpired, um, you know, led to them winning the title this weekend. Yeah, it's a very good point though, Adrian. I've seen it mentioned in reference to Tuma Werner, but to join 
a new club in a foreign country at a time when there's no social contact whatsoever, none of the usual mechanisms for developing a bond, etc. And then, as you say, to not not even have the confidence boost of being a regular feature in the team must be tremendously difficult. Social life in your first season at a new club is massively important because you want to get to know your teammates and for them to get to know you. And it definitely helps helps relationships on the pitch. And the, and the fact that they've been so limited and, and yeah, he's been unable to enjoy Manchester, enjoy England, the English experiences. Yeah, it must have been it's doubly hard when you're out of the team because you're feeling a bit rubbish about yourself anyway. So yeah, I, I don't don't think enough is really sort of thought um, about players that are out of the team in that kind of situation. Okay, well, Man City who picked up the League Cup a week ago could have picked up the league here. Their next chapter, the next stop on their treble train, is of course uh, Tuesday's Champions League semi-final second leg with Paris Saint Germain. They have two away goals, Man City, but they are facing two of the most dangerous attacking players in football. So how safe a lead is that? Joining us now from the front line of football, here's PSG loving Julian Laurence. Jules, you told us last week it wouldn't be easy against Man City for Paris Saint-Germain, but after that first half, you must have felt super confident. <laughs> yeah, I did. Well, confident is, is a strong word, but I certainly loved the way PSG played in that first half, especially the first half hour really where I thought they were Wonderful with the ball to get out of the, the press. I just thought if they can play the second half like they did in the first half, th- there's something happening there. Unfortunately, mm. they, they could not keep it up. But I, I thought the, the way they play in the first half is certainly the way to go in the second second leg as well. If they can keep it up for a bit longer, right. I think that's how you create problems and trouble for, for Man City. OK, although Man City might feel they'll try and play like they did in the second half, in which case PSG will have real problems. Having seen both halves last week, how much chance do you think PSG realistically have? And where, where do you think the key thing will be for, for them in terms of maybe trying to knock Man City out off their stride? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think there's, there's always a chance in football. It's a, it's a very small one, of course. I think the probability of teams who lost 2-1 at home in the first leg of a European Cup game, Champions League game, is only 7% then to qualify in the second leg. I do think that PSG can do it, especially if Neymar and Mbappé can put on a, on a special performance but but certainly I think they will have to be physically better and fitter than they were in that first leg where clearly as soon as you drop your intensity and your rhythm against a team like City they they, they come back at you and they, they put you under so much pressure that you you're forced to make mistakes I don't think that City played amazing football in that second half I just think that they were so good without the ball much better without the ball than they were in the first half and then they forced PSG to make those mistakes that is still is still the expected goals of the two goals City scored combined is 0.08. No one never scores in those positions. Mm-hmm. However, they force you to make those mistakes and they were really good in the second half. But I don't think they played PSG off the park with the ball and created many, many chances. Not like Bayern Munich, for example. Right. So I still think there's something for PSG in that in that game, in that second leg. It's just you know, it's just that you'll have to be so efficient in both boxes and, and physically. I think City, like United, are so strong, so fit that PSG would have to be able to match them in that compartment as well. Right, OK. You mentioned you need a big game from the big names, Mbappe and Neymar. Mbappe really quiet last time out. First time he hadn't had a shot, a single shot in a Champions League game and he didn't play this weekend against Lens. What's his status for Tuesday? He, he will be there Tuesday. They arrested him on, on Saturday against Lens. He had a little 
a niggle in his calf. He he says he was not fully fit for the first leg, uh, which at times he looked like he was not mm. fully fit, that he was not really himself. He was doing a lot of stretching for his groin, for his calf, for his hamstring as well. So maybe maybe there was something physically that was not right. Uh, but again, uh, he, he needs to be at his best or near his best if PSG want want to qualify on on Tuesday in the second leg. If I don't think you can do it with without Kylian Mbappe near his best. Okay, and how big an absence is Gay going to be? It is big because if you watch the game again, when he when he's sent off, he says you can see you can read on his lips and you can hear it in French. He says they're they're passing the ball and we're not moving, we're not doing anything. They're playing with us right now and. He was the one, really, and uh, and that's where the red card comes from. It's because I think the frustration of him trying to run everywhere on that pitch and and being being pretty much the only one doing so, I think that really frustrated him. And then he made that silly foul, and he knew it was a red card straight away. So he would be amazed. Although I think this is a different, in a way, maybe you need him, you you need him less than in the first leg, in the sense that what you have to do in that second leg is try to have the ball as much as possible. And with Gay, that's not why he's there for. He's there for to chase the ball and press high and, and do that kind of all that running thing. If you want to be City at the Etihad, you will need Paredes and Variety and Di Maria and Neymar to put their feet on the ball and try to keep the ball as much as possible and make City chase it and run after it. And I guess for that, Gay is maybe not as needed. You can always do with Gay and his, his intensity and activity. But in a game like this, maybe having a better Variety than a better Gay is, is more important. Okay. Have you got your kit already washed and, and ready to go for Tuesday, laid out? So I'm going to the game. So yeah. what I think I In might kit. do is wear. I've got like a like a t-shirt, a Paris t-shirt with the uh, the pink and, and black. I might wear that under what I have to wear for French television. I you know I can't go on French television dressed like a fan, unfortunately. So I'll have that, and I'll have you know I'll have my little. Uh, I've got my um, tea flask with a PSG okay. sticker on it that I take with me everywhere. So I'm, I would bring that too. I'm hoping that I can send them good vibes. I'd be sat really behind the bench. Uh-huh. So I'm trying. I'm going to try to send good vibes to, to PSG. Okay. I think you'll be twinned with Cheferin then because I think he's wearing his PSG t-shirt under or maybe over. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. PSG, PSG underwears, PSG socks. He's got everything, the whole lot. And, and hoping for, for at least one of the, uh, the Super League project reject to be knocked out. All right. Nice one. Jules? Enjoy. Thank you. Julian Laurence for that game coming up on Tuesday evening. Now, also in Champions League action this week are Chelsea, who are up against Real Madrid on Wednesday. 1-1, of course, between the two teams back in Madrid. And we've got uh, another friend joining us now, Matt Davis-Adams, to talk about that. And first of all, Matt, if we could... The huge Champions League result that Chelsea women had Sunday afternoon. 2-1 down from the first leg against Bayern in the Women's Champions League semi-final. 4-1 winners. Now, you watch a lot of matches. Where does this one rank this season? I think it's up there. I mean, part of it, obviously, is the drama that comes with the the second leg of a semi-final and and all that was at stake. But it was such a high-quality game. Some some extraordinary goals, some brilliant defending too. And... And 4-1 flattered Chelsea a little bit. Bayern did play well and, and it was that breakaway goal from, from Frank Kirby at the end which kind of secured it. But but seconds before, Bayern were, were in a frantic goal-mouth scramble uh, in front of the Chelsea goal. And, and had that gone in, Chelsea would have been out. Those, are the, those were how fine the margins were. Mm. 
there have been semi-finalists before 2018, 2019. How big an achievement, though, would you say this is? Oh, it's it's the biggest achievement that they've managed. I think it, it even trumps winning winning domestic leagues. They've knocked out Wolfsburg, and now they've knocked out Bayern, who are above Wolfsburg in the table. And and as we know, with Leon and Wolfsburg already gone, there's going to be a new winner of the competition this season. And it's been such a difficult one for English clubs to to make any kind of impression on in terms of reaching a final. It's the first time since Arsenal did it in 2007, and it was a very different competition then. So it's the it's the culmination of years and years of hard work, and I think you saw that in, in Emma Hayes and, and the fact that she couldn't hold back the tears when the final whistle blew. She couldn't hold back a lot of things, actually, Matt. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to sit and give you a load of crappy platitudes. I worked my whole life today, and I'm so f***ing crappy in players. Yeah, that's just Emma. I think you know she's she's not got much of a filter when it comes to uh, to interviews and stuff, and that, that's one of the reasons why people love her so much, I think. It's shaping up to be a remarkable season, this, for the women's side. How many honours are they in for still, Matt? Well, they could win five. So they won the Community Shield at the start of the season. They've already got the, the Conti Cup, the League Cup in the bag. Uh, they're still in the FA Cup. They play Everton in the next round of that. And they have dropped down to second in the WSL table after Man City won on Sunday. But they still have two games left to play and it's still in their hands. And, and you would expect them to go on and, and complete the job. So, yeah, they could they could win every trophy that they've entered, which would be pretty remarkable. Extraordinary. Since we've got you on, let's have a quick word then about the men and the game against Real Madrid. Is last Tuesday going to come back and haunt them, the finishing and that? That seems to be the opinion, doesn't it? My my only caveat to that would be that we thought Atletico Madrid were going to be a lot better in the second leg and and they turned out to be even worse. And I just wonder, with Real Madrid, if they can play much better than they did in the first leg. I think Chelsea can play better. And and obviously, Madrid need to score. And, and doing that against Chelsea is proving exceptionally difficult at the moment. Mm. You know, other than the, the, the brilliant Benzema goal, they, they never really look like, like adding to that after that. So I think it's it's very much in, in Chelsea's hands. Obviously, it's a, it's a game against Real Madrid, the, the absolute godfathers of this competition. So you wouldn't rule them out. But I make Chelsea slight favourites. Okay, based on the fact that they've got the away goal and such an incredible record of keeping clean sheets? Yeah, that's right. I I mean, it'd be important if they can get Tony Rudiger back for that game, set out the win against Fulham on Saturday. Um, So they'll they'll need him back. I wouldn't have thought Mateo Kovacic will be be risked, even if he is past fit to play. So they're a couple of um, a couple of important selection issues. But but then Thomas Tuchel might feel that he's been given a nice headache after the performances of people like Kai Havertz on on Saturday. So yeah, it's in it's in Chelsea's hands, and and that's all you can really ask, I think, at this stage. Mm. Meanwhile, Real Madrid should have, they think, Marcelo free from polling station duties and possibly Sergio Ramos coming back. But the big one is Eden Hazard, who started on Saturday in the Liga against Osasuna. Are you looking forward to seeing him back at the bridge? Yes and no. Uh, yes, because he's the player that I've enjoyed watching more than, more than any other in my time working in the game. And no, because he's not the player that he was back then. And it's a bit sad to see him kind of, he looked a shadow of himself, certainly in that first leg. Obviously, you can play this back on Thursday when he scores a hat-trick and knocks Chelsea out. But based on what I've seen of him at Real Madrid, you'd have to say that that's not particularly likely. But I was heartened that he started in the, the game against Osasuna because I would like him to, to start this match and, and certainly after Wednesday night, enjoy an illustrious Real Madrid career. You big softy. Matt, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Matt Davis-Adams. Sasha, you were at uh, Chelsea's clash with Fulham on Saturday. 
Yeah, and I was very impressed yet again uh, with Chelsea's defending. I mean, I went to the FA Cup semi-final as well, Chelsea v City, where City created absolutely nothing. I think if you actually look at Chelsea's defensive record now, I think it's 11 clean sheets in the first 15 league games under Tuchel. Um, and, you know, the stat would have looked even more impressive, you know, if you, t- if you actually took out that aberration against uh, West Brom. But it's just the way they defend, like against City and against Fulham, you know, teams of very different levels. They always seem to have about twice as many men behind the ball as, as the attacking team. Also, when they counter, you know, like Mason Mount countering, it's just a beautiful sight. It's so organic that the way they move forward is fantastic. The way Mount and Chilwell interact. Chilwell is such a pain to defend against because he constantly moves, he constantly probes. Then, of course, on the defensive side of things, I mean, we could see that Tuchel wasn't happy with him on Saturday because a few too many crosses were coming off his side in the second half. So maybe there could be a little bit of a chink there. But I thought overall, you know, Tuchel was really pleased after the game as well because obviously there was quite a bit of rotation ahead of the Real Madrid game. But, you know, the way the guys came in was reasonably good. Fulham were quite positive in the way they did try to press. They had a few chances in the first half, but once it went 2-0 early in the second half, Chelsea completely shut the game down. And unfortunately, um, I mean, I've been a big fan of Scott Parker and, you know, the work he's done, but I think it's only worked for half a season. They were sort of lashing those crosses into the box, which Rhys James was heading away in the second half. And you were thinking, well, it would have been nice to have Mitrovic there. I know he does Mm. nothing else, but if you're putting high balls in there, you know, Mitrovic should be on, on the end of them. And a Croatian colleague asked Parker about this after the game. You know, why did you pick, you know, Marja as opposed to Mitrovic and then those crosses coming in? And, you know, unfortunately, Parker didn't really have a convincing response. I think the only thing I could make out is basically he's not really convinced by any of his striking options. But, uh, yeah, unfortunately, they, I think they're gone now. Um, but uh, if you go back to Chelsea, I think for Chelsea, this was a very nice game to have ahead of Real. So if I were them, if I were Tuchel, I'd be quite confident. OK, a 2-0 win. Both goals coming from Kai Havertz playing up front with a team of Werner, but you mentioned Mesa Mount on the counter. Oh, my word, Adrian. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was delicious, wasn't it, that touch? Absolutely delicious. But what I liked before the touch was the identification of the space to run into. You know, he's a, he's a player who's thinking all the time and he was playing in a deeper role in this game as a more orthodox midfielder, something I think, um, England might might want to use him in uh, consider using him in in that position. He can do both sides of the game. But yeah, the, to bring it out of the sky like that was was fab- fabulous. But then to produce the inch perfect pass straight away, I, I just thought was was so so classy. He, I remember seeing him at Derby when he was on that loan spell, and and I didn't notice him. And and people asked me about Mason Mount a little bit at that time, and I was like, yeah, he's. He's a good player, but I don't know. I don't know if he's going to make it at Chelsea. I don't know if it's just I saw him have a couple of quiet games, but his development is is immense, and uh, he's he's clearly benefiting as well from from working with Tuchel, um, who I would say that Chelsea are the, are the are the best coach team in the Premier League at the moment, and and when you're in the same league as a Pep Guardiola team, that that's that's quite a compliment, really. They are seamless in and out of possession. Very impressive. And the fact that he's done that while assembling the aeroplane in midair, as the expression goes, is is that fortune? Or is what, what, you would, what would you put that down to? I, I think there's probably a, not necessarily a backlash against Frank Lampard, but I think him leaving probably awoke something in the players that, that made them think, you know, we've got a chance of something else here. I think it's fair to say that Tuchel is more tactically organised than Lampard. And I think even Frank Lampard would probably accept that. So I think when you get a manager like that coming in, 
quite often clever players will think, well, this is my chance to be very quickly improved. So they become like a sponge in training and that becomes cyclical or that becomes kind of self-fulfilling because when the players want to learn more, they're automatically open to ideas. Tuchel comes in and suddenly everything kind of jolts forward. I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens with a full pre-season because on the evidence we've seen, there should be title challenges next season. Even Billy Gilmore coming in for his first start there, they really are thinking players when they're defending. It's not rushing about anymore. They're very rationally cutting off spaces and people coming back to defend. When they have a man over in midfield, they really exploit that, really switched on team. Very, very impressive. Mm. I mean, if anybody knows about rushing about, of yeah. course, Sasha, it's you. <laughs> and they're evolving, James, because remember the first few games where they basically just bored everybody with, with possession under Tuchel. Um, in this game, really fascinating stat, Fulham had more passes. Um, so, so sacrificing a little bit of possession to find space on the breaks is, is something that, that Chelsea are doing more and more of. Interesting. Fulham, by the way, nine points from safety with 12 points left to play for. But are they actually down yet? We'll talk about what Newcastle got up to this weekend very shortly. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. 3rd of May, listener, still. Uh, On this day in 1998, Arsenal secured their first ever Premier League title, courtesy of a 4-0 win over Everton at Highbury. The fourth goal, perhaps you recall, coming in spectacular style, courtesy of Tony Adams. And it's Tony Adams put through by Steve Ball. Would you believe it? Martin Tyler with the classic commentary there. Oh, wait, was it this one? And it's Adams put through by Bold. Would you believe it? That sums it all up. Yep, Tyler re-recording his old classics there uh, for the Arsenal season review on VHS because for contractual reasons they couldn't use the Sky Audio. Basically, he's done a Taylor Swift you know, for legal reasons, having to go back and re... I, I call it a Martin Tyler Swift. Would probably be I was going to say, yeah. Tyler Swift, as I call it. <laughs> Tyler him, yeah. Swift, nice. Adrian, you'd left the previous summer. Cruelly, they, they, they waited till you'd gone before turning into a title-winning side. But you were there for, an, for another iconic on-this-day moment. And this is from a little bit later on. 2005, the 3rd of May. Luis Garcia's ghost goal against Chelsea... At Anfield. I'll never forget it. I was there. Basically, if Martin Tyler's doing a bit of acting, right? He's right. doing a bit of acting there, isn't he? With the with the, with the reading the script, trying to replay his his famous moment. What I did at Anfield on the famous ghost goal night was that I pretended to be a Liverpool fan. Um, I went with went with a good friend of mine, David Holland, and and we did the full Anfield experience. We went in the Albert before the game. We were 
a little bit, a little bit tanked up, I have to say. And and we were singing all the songs in the pub, and then we walked in for Never Walk Alone. It it was an amazing night, and 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 genuinely, I turned to 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 my mate um, while the teams were lined up for the Champions League anthem, and I said, "I've never been at a game where it's as intimidating as this. Chelsea's players must be bricking themselves." And that, I remember it, and it it was just so loud. It was so loud, so fierce. They despised Chelsea, and uh, and yeah, I, I had a terrible view of the ghost goal. I was at the other end of the pitch, but mm. it was it was an amazing night. And yeah, I, I don't think we got in until until daylight. Absolutely cracking experience. It sounds like you turned a little bit, Adrian. Do you do you know what I mean? Oh, for, for that night, oh, look, I needed no encouragement to, to cheer against Chelsea. Let me right. tell you. Right. <laughs> so, so, so that was that was not hard. But no, I, I, yeah, I've just always had a bit of a soft spot for for Liverpool and Liverpool fans, and and that atmosphere was 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 mega. It really was, and, and I'll never forget it. All right. Well, for those of you who don't recall, Luis Garcia's ghost goal, Sasha, would you like to just explain? Uh, it was four minutes in. Uh, Milan Baros broke through in on goal, got taken out by Petr Cech. Uh, Garcia poked the ball towards goal, which was cleared on and off the line, which I think still we don't really know. Uh, but my take on it is if the goal doesn't stand, Cech goes into, goal, into penalty for Liverpool. So either way, Liverpool were winning in that moment. But for the rest of that game, it was a tight game. There weren't many chances. No. And actually, the next clear-cut chance was Gudjonsson deep in, um, you know, towards the end of the game, which I still have absolutely no idea how it didn't go in. I think no one on the cop still has to this day any idea how it didn't go in. But um, I think people remember that night at Anfield as possibly like the most visceral European night for Liverpool. I think maybe there have been perhaps greater performances like I don't know, Liverpool uh, for Barcelona nil. But for the sheer atmosphere and it's it's tension. It was tension in those in those matches in those semi-finals against Chelsea. Um, uh, those games were always close. Were always decided on small details, usually in Chelsea's favour because they had better players. But on this particular night, remember how far Chelsea were ahead in the league. Like it was, they were absolutely gone. Mm. Um, like Liverpool really should not have competed with them, and yet they did. And it kind of brought back that whole thing about Liverpool do well in Europe. Something different happens at Anfield. Kind of reminded people that it really can happen. And as Adrian, you know, testifies there, you know, it was really hugely impressive what was happening in the stadium that night. That night, sixteen years ago, on this day, uh, Adrian Arsenal, not winning titles these days, uh, but winning a game away at St James's on Sunday afternoon, two nil. Was this much better from your Gunners, or was it just a more easygoing opponent? <laughs> It was professional. It was it was what Mikel Arteta would have wanted from the team. They'd had three very mediocre performances in a row against Fulham, Everton, and Villarreal, and they needed to they needed to, to to just put in a proficient performance ahead of Thursday and the Villarreal game just to boost confidence. Do the basics well, get a clean sheet, win, and 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 that's what they did. Um, yeah, it was it was solid. Um, I think a word for Elneny scoring his first mm-hmm. Premier League goal. Um, he, he scored some crackers in the cup competitions, but Elneny also in this game misplaced his one and only misplaced pass in the 88th minute. So he was two minutes away from the hallowed 100% pass accuracy stat. So, so I felt for him. <laughs> um, but yeah, he came in and did a good job. But for me, the highlight of the game was, was Martinelli's wonderful assist mm-hmm. for, uh, for Aubameyang and who defied you know defied his age really with the athleticism of, of the finish I mean it was 
really awkward. I've seen the still of it. He's, he's three feet off the ground. His right leg is, you know, outstretched like a karate kick. And he, he spanked it into the net. It's a fabulous goal. How, how old is Aubameyang, sorry? 31, I think. Is he 31? Is he 31? Is that something that you guys find that footballers reach a certain age and they just remain that age forever? He, for me, is very much sort of 27, 28. But, yeah. Anyway, as you say, that was a fabulous assist laid on by Martinelli. What are your thoughts on Villarreal on Thursday? What what happened in the first leg? Because I was busy watching the the Man United-Roma game. Dreadful first half performance, um, mistakes. Um, I think Granite Xhaka was a little bit sort of exposed at left back, didn't get much protection, and and they made yeah they made two big mistakes for the goals, and then they were they were chasing it, and it, the, the story of the game was Mikel Arteta went with a false nine, Emil Smith Rowe up front, he had three strikers on the bench, and it was a decision that 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 backfired, and um, yeah, it was one of those where. Potentially, he, he tried to do a bit of a pep on a European night. Tried to be a little bit too clever. Mm. It didn't. It didn't work. And and I, I don't think we'll be seeing anything like the same formation or or even starting eleven for the second leg. Where I hope Abamyang will be back. Um, potentially Kieran Tierney. Um, I would like to see Xhaka and Partey reunited in midfield. So so yeah, I think it'll be a much much stronger Arsenal in in the second leg. Okay. Well, even with Newcastle's defeat, they are still nine points ahead of Fulham in the bottom three with only 12 left to play for. So they they should be all right. Brighton, though, definitely looks safe. They are now 10 points clear and set for their fifth straight top flight campaign. Yes, definitely. They are safe. And uh, I think a really kind of an important win for Graham Potter in terms of He's been talked about being linked with a Spurs job in the last week. And I think some Spurs supporters I, I saw on, on Twitter were sort of a little bit snarky about that and saying, well, why are we going to appoint a manager who's, you know, his team is struggling to stay up. But, you know, Adrian mentioned earlier their, their chance creation at home. They, they rank seventh for, for shots and chances created this season. They're brilliant in defence. Lewis Dunk, if he was at a bigger club, he'd, he'd be walked into the England squad by now. He is a, an excellent defender and and he's also bringing through Ben White, who is going to be the next big, you know, the next big six defender. Um, I think I, I don't see him staying. Maybe it, they, there's rumours they're going to sell Eve Basuma this summer. I think, which means they might be able to keep Ben White for another year. But um, yeah, that that's a, the credit of, of a manager like Potter is that he improves players. Mm. Uh, do, and- do you think Daniel that Basuma might be the best? in his position outside of the, the big boys in terms of quality. Uh, I, I, I rate him highly. I have, I think he's better than mo- most of them at the big boys. I, I, it, it sounds like Liverpool really want him, which would make sense as the kind of Wijnaldum replacement. Um, but yeah, I would be, it would be, if Manchester United don't move for him, they're foolish because he's, he's, a, he's, he's a double the player that Fred is, I think, in terms of the, the completeness of his game. Honourable shout for Leandro Trossard in this game as well because I thought he was the one player that Leeds just had no no answer for at all. And he, he also summed up, you know, Brighton's problems with like mm. one absolutely terrible miss. But I thought his movement and his length, you know, he, you know, playing behind the front too, um, maybe this is where Leeds really missed Phillips who, who might have basically sat in his head. Instead, he was just, uh, you know, ghosting around uh, basically entire Leeds formation and I thought he was fairly key to this particular win here. Daniel, would you like to see Graham Potter stick around at Brighton then for another season and possibly have somebody who actually scores goals playing for him? 
Yeah, he's like, I'm kind of torn in that. I really, I really like him, and I kind of feel like he, he, maybe he might have to move to another club to find the strikers that are incredibly clinical. I mean, it would be it would be slightly ironic if he went to Tottenham, who have the most clinical forwards in the league. Um, but I, yeah, I think he's destined to big things. Yes, I probably would like to see him stay for another season. All right. Well. We'll keep across that as the season winds to its conclusion. Of course, Monday night brings West Brom against Wolves, Black Country Derby and Burnley against West Ham. And at some point, they're hopefully going to get around to staging that Man United-Liverpool game. If you're keen for something to do while you're waiting for those games to roll around, then why not enjoy the Totally Football League show, which is out on Monday, in which there'll no doubt be loads of discussion about the relegation playoff coming up next Saturday between... Wayne Rooney's Derby and Sheffield Wednesday. Oof. There's also the Totally Scottish Football Show available from Tuesday. Among the topics there, I imagine Rangers Celtic on Sunday, 4-1 to Stephen Gerrard's side. Offside Rule WSL edition is out on Tuesday too with more on Chelsea and all that sort of thing and the incredible title race too. And Totally Football Show European edition will also be with you on that day. Inter won the title in Italy. Other things as well. Let's wrap up this edition of the Totally Football Show with the Inter-Totally Cup. The Inter-Totally Cup, sponsored by Paddy Power. Stadiums might not yet be full, but Paddy's offers are at full capacity. Get a free bet if one leg of your four-plus fold acca lets you down on all football matches and markets. T's and C's apply. 18 plus, be Listener, as you know, because you've been counting down to it, it's the last of the quarterfinals today. Already, we've seen Julian Laurence defeat James Horncastle to earn a semi-final matchup with Benji Lanyardo, the official dark horse. Meantime, awaiting in the other semi-final is reigning champion Michael Cox, who will be facing the winner of today's contest. Let's meet the contenders. <laughs> First, he's been breastfed raw data and high-protein stats since birth. It clearly hasn't done him any harm either. He is part man, part spreadsheet. He is Duncan Alexander. Here come the hot statter. Duncan, nice to have you back. Hello. Yes. Hello to you. I know what Bo don't know, or at least you knew what Adrian Clark don't know in round one, sailing through. Yeah, he he put up a good a good fight, but um, yeah, we we go again. So let's bring it on. Well, of course, it was the opening round that did for you last year. This time, you find yourself five questions from a semi-final. That's the magic of the intertos, isn't it? Each year is a new. A new slate, and uh, let's hope right. this one will be full of chalk by the end of the competition. I like it. Who's your charity, and what's your wager, Duncan? Uh, this time I'm going for the RCN Foundation, the Royal College of Nurses, um, which is quite a few nurses in my family. Um, and the bet is I'm going to bet that Barnsley are going to win the playoffs in the championship. OK, well, let's meet your opponent. And his opponent. There's no rushing when this scouse is in the zone. Putting in research and hot to Trotsky. Sasha Gorionov. Sasha, great to hear you again. Hi, James. Great to be here in the second round, aka the quarterfinal. You defeated one of last year's finalists in the first round. You must be feeling pretty good about your chances. 
I feel I feel relaxed. Um, I think uh, my main um, aim this year was not to disgrace myself, and uh, okay. I feel I've already achieved it in the first round. So I'm just enjoying enjoying the tournament, enjoying the football, like Man City did the other night. Brilliant. All right. Well, fingers crossed for some Napoleonic War sites questions. Uh, what's your What's your charity and wager, Sash? Battersea Dogs and Cats again, and uh, my wager would be for PSG to actually knock out Man City. Crikey. All right. Well, this then for a place in the semi-finals against Michael Cox. Duncan, you're up first. Here comes question one. Duncan, name one of the two Serie A clubs that Pep Guardiola has played for. Uh, Brescia. Can you do the other one? Uh, Roma. Is correct. Brescia was enough, but impressive stuff. Question two. Which Champions League winning club used to play at the Stadio Comunale? Uh, should know this. I'm going to say Juventus. Is correct. Question three, Duncan. Which key Brazil player was suspended for their 7-1 defeat to Germany at the 2014 World Cup? It wasn't Neymar because he was injured, hence the, all the praying. Um, Thiago Silva? Is correct. Three out of three for Duncan. At which club, question four, did Brian Clough start his managerial career? That would be Hartley Pools United, as they were known then. Now Hartley Pool. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. And this for a perfect score, Duncan Alexander. Question five. At which club did Eric Cantona start his career? Lens. It was not Lens, Duncan. It was Ozer or ah. Oh Dear. Yeah, more appropriate in this case, but still four out of five. That's a mighty impressive score. What do you think? Yeah, pleased with that. Um, pulled the Juventus one out a little bit. I mean, I knew they've had a few grounds, and I, yeah, so I was pleased with that one. But um, I could have done one better, but I'm pleased with four. So yeah, happy. Good. Will it be enough? Let's now hear from Sasha Gurinov. Sasha, obviously, you're allowed one mistake, but anything more than that will be catastrophic. Here comes question one. Name one of the two countries other than Spain and Italy that Pep Guardiola has played in. Mexico. Correct. Do you know the other one? Uh, oh, uh, did, did he go somewhere like Qatar? He did go somewhere like Qatar. Somewhere very like Qatar. <laughs> Qatar, basically. Question two then. Which Champions League winning club used to play at the Chamartin Stadium? Oh, uh, Real Madrid. Very good. Two for two. Question three. Which Croatia player was sent home from the 2018 World Cup after one game, thus missing their run to the final? Ah, Kalinic? Is correct. And of course, long-term listeners will know that we're not fussy. A surname is enough. Question four. At which club did Nigel Clough start his managerial career? Which club did Nigel Clough? Uh, it's all blanks, so it's going to, I'm going to have to do a Benji Laniada and just say Burton. Burton who? Albion. Is correct, Sasha. Oh, it really? It literally is 
Burton Albion. But they couldn't think, so I just said Burton. No, he literally started there. Wow. Which means, Sasha, <laughs> with this next question, you can go through to that semi-final berth with lovely Michael Cox. The question is, at which club was Eric Cantona briefly director of soccer? Hmm. Director of soccer. Eric Cantona, briefly director of soccer. At which club? Can be into Miami, can it? Is that your answer, Sasha? It's going to have to be, yeah. Into Miami. No, it's New York Cosmos, you boob. Oh, yeah, I... <laughs> Right. We're into tiebreaker territory for, I think, the third time in this quarterfinals. Incredible. Just shows the quality, doesn't it, at this level? It does. To be fair, Duncan, it really, really does. Incredible performances from both of you, by the way. And, you know, for, for me, you both winners, etc. and so on. But here comes your tiebreaker question. Remember, you both have to text me the answer. Here comes your question. And remember, closest answer wins. According to the Guinness Book of Records, the highest ever attendance at a World Cup final was Brazil against Uruguay in 1950. How many people were there? How many people at the 1950 World Cup final, Brazil against Uruguay? Uh, I'm looking at what I'm going to say now and I'm thinking, mm. that sounds mm. a lot. Well, yeah. Make it's sure. the highest ever attendance. It should be a lot. Okay, I'll go for it. All right, I'm sending Sasha's mine. Sasha's gone. Okay, both of your answers are in, and it's going to be tight. Duncan Alexander has gone for 204,000 people, and Sasha Gurionov has gone for 199,000 people. Which will be closest? The highest ever attendance at a World Cup final, according to the Guinness Book of Records, was 199,854. Sasha Gurionov, you are in the semi-finals. I honestly thought I've gone too high. I, I, I was looking at thinking I recognize 199, but it can't have been that much. Right. Ooh. Just goes to show, Duncan, 200,000 is dangerous. Attendance. <laughs> yeah. Twos and zeros. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that stadium is famous for, for being one of the few stadiums that can get that high. So, Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, no question. And probably the actual attendance was closer to yours, but we're looking at the official attendance as certified by the uh, Guinness Book of Records. So uh, extraordinary. Great performance, Duncan. Really uh, fabulous. And, but, but I'm sure you'll, you'll agree that uh, Sasha's was perhaps even more impressive. Yeah, I mean, when he rattled off the first four um, and I thought he was going to get the fifth. So, to be honest, going to a tie break was was a bonus at that stage. So, so yeah. Um, and, I, you know, there's no Jack Lang antics in the tie break. So, yeah, fair and square. And I'll, uh, I'll be supporting Sasha for the, for the rest of the tournament. Do you give him a chance? You've seen Michael quizzing up close. Do you give him a chance against Michael Cox? It was. It's going to be very much the uh, the glamour semi final. I think. Uh, I think Sasha's consistency is pretty fearsome. But but Michael can pull answers out of from out of nowhere. So yeah, right. it's it's going to well, be exciting to to listen to. And Sasha, after Duncan put four out of five together, the pressure was really on you. You were only allowed one mistake, and even that would bring you to a tiebreaker. How much were you feeling that? 
I was just uh, admiring uh, Duncan's performance, to be honest, because I thought, I actually honestly thought he's going to get five out of five. Um, so I was just happy to try to play my part in a beautiful semi final. And fortunately, I was able to do that. Well, the quality has been incredible. I have to thank you both for that on behalf of the listener. And uh, we'll be looking forward to hearing you, Sash, against Michael Cox in the semi final. For now, to both of you, congratulations. As they say in Liverpool, we'll see you in the semi-finals of the Inter-Totally Cup. And if you want in on Sasha's bet that PSG will knock out Man City on Tuesday night, you'll find it at 11-2 at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Odds are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. And please, gamble responsibly. It was an amazing, amazing matchup. I actually really, really enjoyed it because uh, it ebbed and flowed. Um, so Duncan had so much knowledge. Thing is, you know, I was we were having a chat beforehand, and I said, let's settle it like men. Let's just have a nil-nil in the penalty shootout. But he was having none of it, and uh, I had to respect his integrity. And after that, I was just admiring his performance, and I, mean, I thought it was great. Sash, I'm interested to hear how a game can ebb and flow when you have five questions each. In <laughs> well, in your mind, in your mind, you know, it's it's round by round because you count off this every single one, you know, as you catch up or you don't catch up. And uh, yeah, he was. Um, yeah, I thought I thought it was a really good game. Like, really enjoyed it. Do you know it. what? I I thought it was a high quality quarter final. I, th- mm. I think that, that that Michael Cox will will respect you in the next stage of this competition. Can I point out that Sasha and Duncan are the two top scoring players in the tournament so far, with eight points out of ten on their two different rounds of questions. Michael is only on seven out of ten, along with uh, Julian Laurence. Benji, who, as we mentioned, is our official dark horse, is on 6 out of 10 so far. James Horncastle also got 7 out of 10, but had the misfortune to come up against an on-fire Julian Laurent, so he is out. There you go, Sasha. What do you think? Are you going to take Cox? I so think one thing... Sorry, that sounded terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's less ebb and flow, a bit more aggressive than ebbing and flowing. Woof. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> So um, I think one thing that Michael has over me is um, in the previous round, he didn't know a couple and he deduced them. And I think I don't have that ability. I kind of either know or I don't. So, for example, I failed with with the Cantona question. So I think uh, I still think he has the edge. Thing is, the way I view the tournament now, if Benji and I get it to the final, it's going to be like Spartak Moscow, West Ham United, Champions League final, anti-Super League, basically. I like it. I like it. Well, the first of the semi-finals is coming up on Thursday, of course, along with other things as well. So do make sure, listener, you join us for that. Many thanks for now, though, uh, to Daniel, to Adrian and to Sasha, with our congratulations, for being with us on a Sunday evening. And uh, loads of other podcasts available in the next few days, including that Totally show with myself and Rafa and Julianne and James on Tuesday. But for now, well, from all of us here... It's goodbye. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.